From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. Uh, my name is Chad Abumrad. I uh, am the creator and uh, oh, so many things for Radio Lab, uh, which is a podcast and a radio show in America. And I uh, also host and produce another show called More Perfect. When I was growing up, I wanted to be the guy who wrote the pretty music for movies. And uh, I kind of still want to do that. <laughs> so, yeah. Through a unique combination of audio storytelling, music and soundscapes, Jada Bumrad has been credited with creating a new aesthetic for broadcast journalism. Of his podcast, Radio Lab, one colleague has confessed, I marvel at Radio Lab when I hear it. I feel jealous. I'm a hack in comparison. Everyone else is too. That colleague is this American life creator, Ira Glass, son of Lebanese parents and raised in Nashville. Jad has said of his childhood that I was always in this weird in-between space, which I think is very normal for a lot of immigrant kids. Jad Abumrad, what is that in-between space? What does it feel like there? It's being the Arab kid in a place where there are no Arabs and not quite feeling of that place. And then conversely, going back to Lebanon and being the American (laughs) and not quite feeling of that place. And so you're sort of straddling two cultures, which is... um, as I've, as I've sort of grown up and, and met more people like that, it's just su- a super ordinary experience, I think, but very useful in the end if you're going to be a journalist. Because I think that's what journalists are supposed to do. They're supposed to sort of be straddling between uh, different cultures and never quite allowing themselves to tip into one or the other. I think you have to maintain that sort of in-between in space. And so I now look back at that the, the awkward kid <laughs> who lived in Tennessee and think, I'm kind of glad he was awkward. You know, I mean, it makes sense. Your father, Naji, was a doctor. Your mom, a scientist. Where were they yeah. from in Lebanon? They were, my dad was from a small uh, village in the mountains of Lebanon called Wadi Shahrur, which is this tiny, tiny little place. And my mother lives in a, in a kind of city-ish place north of Beirut called Juni. And they, they met and came right over, had me expecting to go back, but then the war broke out, and so we were, we became Americans. And how and why did they end up in Nashville, Tennessee? It's not where you might imagine uh, some migrants from Lebanon would necessarily choose to land. No, it's uh, at the time that we arrived there, I don't think there were any other Lebanese, at least that I was aware of. I'm sure there were. But uh, my dad ended up there because he, he, he had studied at the AUB, the American University of Beirut, and then wanted to do his res- residency in America. And I believe Vanderbilt accepted him. And uh, so we went there so he could be he could do his residency. And then I think we were going to go back. And then we ended up staying. And then in, over the course of five, ten years, he ended up importing about 30 or 40 different Lebanese colleagues who also were sort of running from the war. And by the time I was sort of conscious, like as a young kid, there was this like little almost Lebanese commune in Tennessee that my dad had sort of created. Right. Empire building. Yeah, well, a <laughs> tiny little, like, empire. You talked about occupying these two spaces. Was it just mentally occupying 
an American space as well as a Lebanese space, or also physically being in those two places? Sort of. I mean, mostly mentally. I was. I mean, I'm pretty much an American at this point. Um, we. I lived in Lebanon for. I, we did end up going back for a couple of years, and so I. I have very strong memories of that, of being. Uh, being sort of the American kid, and I mean, I, I speak Arabic, but I, I, anyone, any Lebanese person who hears me speak Arabic knows instantly I'm not Lebanese. I'm just kind of uh, an American Lebanese. And so I remember that. That felt that feels very physical in my memory. But mostly it was just being, um, not really knowing who you are exactly, which is more of a mental thing. So what's it like growing up in Nashville? It's funny. I mean, uh, just working backwards, my dad lives in Nashville again. So we all moved away and then he kind of is now back there. And I go back to visit him and it's in the in the interim, it's become a very cool place. It's like, kind of Brooklyn-y now. Right. It's, it's a lot of hipster, hipsters. Have hipsters have taken over. Yeah, a lot of hipster bars. And there's a TV show called Nashville uh, in America that uh, has made Nashville kind of sexy to the rest of the country. So I go back there and I'm like, oh, wow, this is kind of cool. But when I was growing up, it was not cool. It was very Southern, very church-going, very, uh, very whitewashed. I spent a lot of time in my room I was kind of an awkward kid, not very good at socializing. So I actually would end up, I sort of would nerd out on, I had this little synthesizer and I had a little four-track cassette recorder. I'm thinking high school now. And I would um, pretty much spend every Friday, Saturday, Sunday night just like in that room playing some tones from the synthesizer into the cassette, the four-track cassette recorder, making a couple of layers, bouncing them down to another track, doing that over and bouncing them down, creating these little like whooshy soundscapes that for me felt like mental travel, like traveling to some distant land. And it also felt like I was trying to make those those film scores for the movies that I'd always dreamed about making. And so that's kind of how I was, that's how I was as a kid. I didn't engage too much with the outside world. I was just in my room a lot. Was it lonely in that way? I guess, I guess, yeah. I mean, I I don't remember it as being lonely. I remember it as being kind of amazing. And, and to the, these days, I, I still do that, you know? I mean, so much of my life is super social with running a show and doing interviews and making stories, all of which are very social. Um, but I still escape into my room and just kind of like nerd out on the sense. Storytelling clearly is so much of, of who you are today, was it a big feature of life growing up, either within your family or the community? No, actually, it wasn't. We're all, I come from a family of introverts. And we would obviously, I think storytelling is something everyone does with everyone. We would all tell each other stories. But I can't say I come from a stock of great storytellers. Like, I listen to my dad tell stories. And he does the thing that I do, which is like, you get stuck in the wrong places. You, do, you forget the crucial details. You forget to do the sort of big story turns. You, like, the, I mean, I listen to Robert tell stories. And Robert's just a natural storyteller. Like, it just comes out in story shape from his mouth. For me, that doesn't happen. And I don't really come from a family of people who can do that. Um, we're all a little bit engineers, I would say, you know. And so I can kind of engineer a story from the inside out. And and I, I have a very good ear for what feels and sounds natural, but when I try and do it on the on the cuff, it doesn't come out that way. <laughs> it just doesn't. <laughs> you need editing. I do. I need editing, and I need to sort of sort of think about it. I, so I, I see it very mechanically. You know what a story needs and what it is.
Judd Abumrad studied at Oberlin College in Ohio. He learned creative writing and music composition. With a special interest in electronic and electroacoustic music, his early career was in his bedroom composing film scores. So you did actually start to compose film scores, didn't you? Yeah, when I, I mean, I did end up going to school for music. I went to Oberlin College in Ohio. And um, I came out trying to do that. You know, I spent maybe the first two years of post-college writing uh, some music for student films. You know, I'd go to NYU and just put up a bulletin saying, hey, do you need any music for your movie? And uh, that sort of worked. I ended up writing a couple of short student films, doing some theater pieces and some weird experimental stuff. And I did end up writing music for one feature film that never went anywhere. Uh, And I believe the music I wrote got taken out. So uh, all of which is to say it (laughs) didn't. You know, in the end, I don't think I was very good at it at that point. Because I would, I, I still have this problem to some degree. I would write the music that felt right for that scene or that movie. But then the director would say, yeah, that's close, but I need it to feel more staccato or edgy or something like that. And I couldn't, I I didn't have the skills to be able to take that first idea and morph it. I would just get stuck on the first idea and I would try and do some things and I'd give him back and he'd say, yeah, that's kind of like the first thing you gave me. Can you give me something else? And I'm like, I'm trying, I can't. So I would get stuck on the first idea, which I think is a, a pretty usual thing when you're just starting out. You can't somehow generate variations quickly. So yeah, I, that was my problem. And uh, now that I'm making Radio Lab and part of my job is in a way film scoring, like there's a part of the process where you're writing the music for the thing. Now I've learned to do that, you know, because you play it for someone and someone's like, yeah, the music's too much or you need more music or you need dreamier music or more aggressive music, whatever it is. You have to be able to just like quickly just like generate a new thing fast. And now I can do that. But Is there a skill in interpreting those kind of adjectives into music? I think searching for music is just a, is, <laughs> is an endlessly frustrating thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, the adjectives are helpful if they're since if they're tied to sensations. So it's like this is the so that piece of music um, feels too forward or something. Where it gets where I find it gets just hopelessly difficult if someone tries to tell you what to do. You know, like because I find that people are very very perceptive and good at telling you when something how something makes them feel, but they're really bad at then translating. The, into a set of actions that you can take, mm. which was my husband, which was my problem in the beginning. So what I actually tell people when we're when we're giving feedback on music or anything, really, I, I always say, "Don't tell me what you think should happen. Just tell me where you felt what." So you say, "Okay, you know, thirty seconds in, I felt like ah oh, flat, like literally, like where in your body did you feel something?" And then I tr- and then I, I I give it as my task to then translate those sensations into experiments that I can do to try and solve it uh, because that's always the tricky part. Talking about music can be really like fruity. <laughs> You're like, I feel, I feel my shoulders sag in this part and yeah, then okay. my, my chest lift in that part and you just sound like an ass. <laughs> but I feel like that's the only way to do it. That's the only way to talk about it. So how do you then start moving into storytelling from there? Apart from being told this music is not quite right. Mm-hmm. When does the move happen into into storytelling? The move happened um, 
at a very specific moment, maybe four or five years out of school, I had a real kind of crisis. I think every, I think it's pretty ordinary, like the post-college flail kind of thing, where I the thing I wanted to do just wasn't wasn't working, and I wanted to be a musician, and it wasn't happening. And my my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, suggested, well, hey, you know, you like music, you also like to write. Uh, stories because I had been writing stories. I I was actually a creative writing double major. Uh, why don't you do the thing that seems to be kind of at the middle point of those two things, which was radio, uh, because radio is about sound. It is about use of sound and music, but it's also about talking, telling stories, and maybe I could do that. And I had never ever ever had that thought before. I had never actually been a huge radio listener, so I just decided, well, all right. That sounds better than any idea I have. So I went and volunteered at a community radio station called WBAI in New York, which um, which is a super left, super dysfunctional kind of community <laughs> radio station. As they most, all are. As most of them are. <laughs> and uh, But it was amazing because I kind of learned the basics there, just like how do you – what do you do with a microphone? Like where do you do – you, how do you hold it? What kind of questions do you ask? When you get an interview, how do you – edit that and then if you have two bits of tape how do you write a sentence that connects them all those like those rudimentary things you need to know I started doing that it was really interesting because along the way maybe a year or two into that I had a couple of like epiphanies which is it feels like composing to me like that brain space you have to get in to compose music is in a way very similar to the brain space you get in when you have to compose ideas it's technical. It's it involves aspects of structure, um, flow. You know, you're trying to make bits of sound flow. So, a lot of times, you're just putting things next to each other and letting your intuition sort of say, "Oh, that works," or "That doesn't work." All of those sort of ways that you approach writing music were the same. I found in writing a story, but it was actually better because the story was this like box. It dictated what needed to happen. And so it, it took away all the like hemming and hawing I would have when I was writing music because you can't really get too like esoteric with a story. You have to honor the story. And sometimes the story needs something and you have to give it the thing it needs. And that sort of structure was really helpful. It's sort of like it was so immediate. Like someone would say something into a mic and I was trapped by those words. And I... I had to sort of figure out how to write the music and do all the things, but that never damaged the words that were at the sort of surface level of the story. And I, I feel like I needed that. It was like a catalyst to make me get me past my music writer's block and all that sort of stuff. I, I needed that in order to be a musician, weirdly. And the more I did it and the more I started, I mean, when I started creating Radio Lab and developing a style that was so layered and with lots of things, Every day it would feel more and more and more like composing. It's very technical, editing a big complex piece of audio with multiple tracks, but it's also a very creative process. So drawing on kind of both of your mm -hmm. minds, your engineering bit of your family and this intense creative drive. Yeah. It's funny. It reminded me, like, doing these stories. So one of the things I learned in school, music school, one of the very few things that stuck in my head was um, Bach Counterpoint. 16th century counterpoint. That's this. It's a, it's this marvelous musical system that is sort of almost 50% engineering and 50% just pure creativity. 
And that you had the, you have four voices, and you know, and the voices have these like very rigorous rules as to how they can move. So if if your alto line goes up a third, then has to descend to fill the gap. And there are certain intervals that can't jump, and there are certain intervals that can. And every th- decision the alto makes then affects the soprano, and vice versa. And so you have these. It's like trigonometry. You have to sort of like, or like doing a crossword. You have to figure out how to make these voices move so that you satisfy all the rules. At the same time, you want to sit back from that and just, you want your heart to sing because so, you want these melodic lines to be beautiful. And like Bach used to wake up in the morning before breakfast and write like five of these things. And they'd just be ecstatically glorious bits of music, but also marvelous acts of engineering. And in some way, I feel like a story has those same challenges and those same ambitions attached. There are rules you have to follow. You have to somehow make, you have to, continuity, you know, or like if you're editing six voices and and someone's in the present tense, you always have to stay in the present tense. And so if someone's saying, I did this and someone's saying, I'm doing this, that somehow jars. So you have to like organize that. There are all of these rules. At the same time, it shouldn't feel like an engineered thing. It should feel like just some lyrical bit of music that just somehow is organic and has its own logic. And that makes you feel something, you know? So uh, I, I think a lot when I'm editing about like all those rules of counterpoint and, and how you have to balance all that stuff. How consciously did you have to work on identifying your voice? Sure. I mean, that was maybe the single hardest thing for me as uh, getting into broadcasting. I mean, Ira existed, thankfully. So there was, there was the Ira model. But really, the main model when I was getting into it was that sort of that newsy pitch pattern, you know? I was doing news stories when I started. And so I would try to be that newsy person. And I, oh my God, I would work so hard. And I, I listen to those old pieces and I can hear, I can hear the tension in my voice because I'm trying so hard to talk like a news person and have that sense of authority. Uh, and it just, well, it didn't work for me. And um, I did end You've up- You've got it though. It sounds very authentic. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I ended up doing a show that was very inspired by This American Life uh, at the beginning. And so I, I sort of, I mean, he's, a, he's amazing. Like, he, he sounds like he shouldn't be on the radio, except it's the, I love the way he sounds, you know, not just because he doesn't sound newsy, but it just, he sounds so much like himself. But um, it, I, people forget how radical Ira was when he first came out. I mean, nobody sounded like him. And the fact that he had the confidence to just, like, be that guy. And people still yell at him for it, which is baffling to me. So, yeah, I don't know. Having him as a model was really helpful to me. But it took me years. It took me years to sound like a real human. In 2002, Radiolab aired for the first time. Jad Abumrad had found a way to genuinely blend his talents for both music and for storytelling. Jad, I suppose most people listening to this will know who you are and what you do, but for anyone that doesn't, what is Radiolab? Oh, man, it's a <laughs> perennial. I, I still have yet to figure out how to talk, get to do the elevator pitch, so to speak. I mean, Radiolab is... It's this constantly evolving thing, but on the most basic level, it's two guys who really like each other and sometimes want to kill each other. We're trying to sort of investigate some complexity in the world, some complex thing. Sometimes it's science, some idea in science. Sometimes it's politics, uh, 
very recently it's been a lot of stories about the law, but we're looking at some complicated idea and we want to figure it out. We want to learn about it. And we end up sort of arguing about that, telling stories about that, interviewing smart people about that. And in the course of an hour or however long, hopefully taking all the forms that exist within radio, the interview, the feature, and mixing them together in in some kind of musical version of a conversation that you see how complicated this is? I already like want to smack myself. <laughs> musical version of a conversation that that hopefully finds some kind of meaning in that idea. And all the while, there are 12, 14 layers of sounds that are kind of coming in and out, and it sounds like some crazy hi-fi dreamscape from another dimension. Uh, but all the while, it's still a conversation. So it's all of those things kind of in a, in a balanced tension. When we first came out, I probably edited more. I, m- there were probably more edits per minute than there should have been, <laughs> or per second, frankly. Uh, there, it was a very, very edited. Very. I mean, I was coming from music school, so I had like, I had like music concrete in my ears. So I was like soup. I was, a, I was like very interested in experimental music, and I still am. And so I was really interested in like, can I take these sort of stuffy forms of documentary journalism, and can I make them feel like Stockhausen? Which is, frankly, idiotic. <laughs> like, I don't think that's very worthwhile. But at the time, I was sort of, those were the ideas that I had in my head. And so I was really interested in taking voices and stretching them and editing them hyper fast and using 12 layers, 12 different interviews to tell one story when I think two would have been fine. So, you know, I, I think I was just exploring the style and th- developing the style. And sometimes it was too much. But I also think at that point, you know, I mean, the prevailing conventions were just turn on the mic and start talking. And maybe there's an edit for music to come in or maybe, you know, uh, you were trying to mask the edit at all times, you know. We got a lot of bad feedback at the beginning, you know, Uh, some of which is probably warranted, but a lot of it is just like people just didn't get it. And I was like, okay, well, fuck you, (laughs) you know. It's like that. this, it's, 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 we're just trying something new here and it's going to work sometimes and not others. Um, but over the years, it's funny. I mean, people the listening. The the, the pay, I've I've noticed like the the internal clock of the way that things are cut. Uh, that sort of like internal felt tempo has sped up culturally, to where like what would have felt like a fast edit ten years ago doesn't feel fast now. Uh, the things that felt slow back then feel way slower now. And so and like I think people can handle jump cuts in a way that they couldn't. In ten years ago, I mean, we used to do these things where we'd try like deliberate jump cuts, where like where the edit was designed to jar you. It was designed to like make you kind of pay attention. And uh, I liked the sort of like caustic nature of some of those edits, but now it doesn't sound caustic anymore. It just sounds like yeah, all right, that's just what TV does. You know, there is a school of thought in broadcast journalism or storytelling that that you do just turn the microphone on and and let someone be heard as they as yeah. they conceive their thoughts. And it seems to me that in America there is a much greater tendency towards really heavy editing. Yeah, what's your view on that? Yeah. I mean, my views evolved over time. I mean, I'm, as you know, a great lover of the edit. <laughs> yeah. well, well, you're definitely, I mean, you're talking about, in, a, in, in my mind, two separate things. Yeah, okay. one, one is, I think, stylistic, which is, do you want to have the artifice be transparent to people? Uh, I think that's important. You know, no, even if, you're, if, even if, there is, if there are zero edits in a, in a sentence or if there are 30, 
I feel like you should be very transparent with your listener. Like, we all know what's going on here. You know, we're doing a thing. Like, you and I right now are in this, like, airless booth with it's it, it, with these giant objects standing in front of our nose. It's a, it's a highly unnatural situation. But we're trying to have a, a natural conversation. And I feel like the only way to be natural and authentic right now is to be transparent about the artifice and to just say, to get that out of the way. And uh, so that, there's that. But the other thing you're talking about, and I, I share your frustrations, is using the edit to sap a complicated, beautiful world of its complexity. Like, quote, dumbing things down, you know, where you take something that can only be expressed in an hour and you try and fit it into two minutes. Like, that's bullshit. I mean, what, you know, the, the secret of Radiolab, or a secret, is that if you listen to how we make the stories, yeah, there are a lot of edits, yeah, it's going quickly, but actually the progression of the story is so fucking slow. It's so careful. Every single beat is measured out. We're going into such stupid amounts of detail in some cases, and we're using sound and all these kind of things to paint that world. But if you actually read a transcript of Radiolab, it's goddamn long form. It is so bloody long form. Uh, like, I cannot stand sound bites. Like, Radiolab is anti-soundbite in its, I think, in not just in its philosophy, but in its DNA. Like, so I completely share what you're saying. Like, we will edit the shit out of things, but, I, but I'm, I'm never going to try and dumb things down. What's a pitching meeting like at Radiolab? Are you in a room? Are you at a table? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big long table, uh, rectangular table rounded edges. <laughs> we have 12 people who from the show who sort of gather around, but most of the time, three or four people would have brought guests. We're definitely like in this mode where we're trying to encourage people from the outside to come to our meetings, to constantly sort of keep... Listeners. Well, yeah, sometimes listeners, but just friends of friends. Because right. um, we're all in this community of journalists. And so, you know, someone will know a reporter at the New York Times and they'll just, they'll just drop in. And so we, we try and just constantly bring in outside people. So it'll be a crowded room sometimes, 20 people at times. And we will have put all the story ideas into a document and that'll get printed out and we'll just kind of go through them. The ones that everybody votes on beforehand are the ones we talk about. How democratic. And, yeah, well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's because we, we had too many half ideas and we were like, we need to... Um, weed out the sort of notions from the actual stories. And uh, and then we just go through them, and it's a sort of a long, raucous uh, meeting that can go, sur- you know, surplus of two hours. And we just try and circle a few that we think could work, you know? What can't you do? What won't you do on Radiolab? You know, uh, I won't. God, that's an interesting question. We won't pander. We won't destroy th- things that feel complicated and try and make them simple. Uh, we won't, I hope, bore you, you know? So that's sort of the it's flip side. A good, of, it's a good we won't, we won't get so technical to the point where you'll never understand, but we won't destroy the nuances so that you'll have a false feeling of understanding. At the end of the day, we just want to make you feel that moment of wonder and and make you have to struggle to sort of grasp different truths and to see things from all sides. Uh, so, yeah, but in terms of topics, stories, I don't know that I'm ready to declare anything off limits. What's the turnaround on a on a episode normally? Anywhere from six months to a year, I would, I would say. I mean, from the, from the moment that 
someone has the idea, pitches it in that story meeting, to the moment it hits uh, hits the podcast, that could that could be six months, a year. I mean, there are ideas that have been floating around and slowly progressing for longer than that. You know, we have a document where everyone just saves all the ideas, and some of them take more than uh, a year. I mean, there was a, a particular story we did. It was the story of a hunter who paid a lot of money to go and kill an endangered black rhinoceros in Namibia because the Namibian government does this thing where they will auction off certain animals and use the money for conservation. So it's this weird thing where you're killing an animal to save it in some weird way. And so we were interested in that story. And um, that story took two years front to back to report because the guy had to get a permit to, and there were, you know, protests and death threats, which stalled things. And so our reporter just followed the story over the entire thing. And it's important to me that we somehow carve out the space where you can take that amount of time with the story. There's a sense that popular storytelling is shrinking, both, mm-hmm. you know, on mass, the, the total amount of it, but also what is consumable is shrinking. Uh, shorter form, more clickbait driven. Uh, what you do kind of defies that trend. Why do you think yours and other examples of long-form storytelling is sustaining in this moment? I mean, you look at what's happening in podcasting right now, it's so much of it is long-form. I don't know. I mean, the sort of hopeful idealist in me thinks people are tired of things that suck, you know? I mean, they're tired of, like, uh, things that are trying to quickly capture their attention and quickly distill ideas. I mean, they, I think people want want things that are richer and more complicated now, maybe as a reaction to the way that media has gone. And so things... What, what, what is the way the media has gone well, in America? Shorter, you know, shorter form and, and um, snappier and fizzier. There's something, though, about where the news media has gone in America that seems to me to be unique to America. There's a lot of things it shares with the rest of the world in terms of length and the, the clickbait thing. But there's something uniquely superficial yeah. to me about the main American news diet. Yeah, I – yeah, boy, boy, is that, is that the – that's – we've. I think the, the American news media is in a state of crisis frankly, not just because of the election, but I mean, I think the election put a nice fine point on that. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's been a fragmentation, which is talked about endlessly, but there used to be Walter Cronkite could get up on the air and talk to 20 million people. And so the idea of media, like that word media, like the, per, the thing that mediates the truth, had real validity because there was a one place that could, where you could all turn to to get the truth. And then something happened over the last few decades where it's all gotten very fragmented. There's many, 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 many more news people doing the news, but they're doing it in much shorter form. Uh, Fox News comes up and, and essentially pioneers the, the idea that you can you can do you can lie and call it the news, you know. And so there are now entirely separate streams of news where people can go to have their own truths be um, reinforced. So that sense that the news that the journal like that, that that the news is bringing you something that you need to know that might be uncomfortable that you as an American need to sort of contend with has disappeared. I don't need to ever be uncomfortable uh, because I can find the news that reinforces my my viewpoints because uh, no one news is has the reach anymore to uh, 
to demand that we all sort of kind of come together and decide as a country what is true. So yeah, that's really worrisome uh, right now. And I'm talking a lot about, about a lot of different things at once, I realize. Um, Some would argue, though, that that diversity of view and diversity of storytelling is a good thing. Yeah, but I think those people are idiots. Like, I mean, I, I do think that you have to have a diversity of perspectives. Uh, and I, you know, the fact that the news, uh, that the media doesn't include uh, people of color enough, I think is a really big problem. So, but in a way, that's separate to me. I do agree. I do think there is a truth that is larger than, I think facts matter. And I think there there is a way in which we have to come together and agree on certain basic facts. I mean, I think like the most urgent of which is are things like uh, human effect on climate. Five years ago, I think the, the polls were 60% of America, 70% of America believed in that humans are making the world warmer. And now it's like 40. And, and so you see this this deleterious effect that because that, people can just go to a place that tells them climate change is BS. And I, I feel like there has to be a place where people can go and actually agree on the truth. At the same time, I also know that um, we'll never get to, to that place and there will always be competing versions of the truth. And so it's weird. I find myself right now really struggling to figure out what the mission is for a journalist in America and maybe everywhere. And where I've landed is that um, if we're in a place where there's so much fragmentation that no one, no one can even agree on what is true and no one has the patience to want to have that conversation – then I feel like the stories we need to tell increasingly are stories which force one another to look through the other person's lens, which force you to get in someone's head who is not like you and who has uh, a different idea. And uh, we've started to tiptoe in that direction as a show, and that to me feels like the most important mission we have right now. Do you think audiences are very tolerant of that? It's funny. I, fi I find our core audiences actually... Um, like one of the reasons you come to Radiolab is you like the feeling of having your mind changed. Like you like that sort of weird vertigo that you get for a second when the thing you thought was true is suddenly a little bit more complicated. So I feel like our core audience is game. But I also worry that our core audience is probably a bunch of liberals, college-educated liberals. I mean, really. Do you uh, reckon many Trump voters no, listen to I mean, Radiolab? I think that's probably a real problem and that, that points at a failure uh, not just of us, but of all of us. I mean, I don't think a lot of Trump voters listen to Radio Lab. I mean, I think uh, I think we're part of a larger sense that like public radio is the enemy of conservative America. I don't know that that should be the case. You know, I mean, most of our stuff isn't political. I mean, Robert would love to talk about why do clouds weigh a thousand tons and yet float in the air. I mean, that's not good. That's a. I feel like that's a question that anyone could be interested in, no matter your politics. I mean, so we're trying to, I mean, honestly, one of the things I'm thinking about a lot now is how do you actually cross that gap? And the gap feels so much bigger than it did just a few months ago. How do you cross that gap? And actually have uh, honest conversations with people who really don't, not just disagree with you, because you can find those people and you can interview them, but wouldn't even think to listen to you or to even want to engage with you. Uh, that's probably not a broadcasting question. That's probably more of a just an engagement question. Uh, I don't think if you broadcast it into the world, I don't actually, I'm quite pessimistic that it, it will cross that gap. You know, I think it'll fall into a, a group of people who probably agree with you. But there's probably something beyond broadcasting that we in the media have to think about to restore that sense that we're all part of one country. And despite our disagreements, we should still negotiate those differences. 
as opposed to just not even bothering. Do you think the American media at large, whether you're talking about mainstream or, or, or the not mainstream, does enough to kind of get to grips with the geography of America, to understand the inside of America, not just the sort of bi-coastal parts where the media tends to be based? I mean, obviously we don't do enough. I mean, we had a situation with the election where uh, everything pointed to a pretty sizable victory for the Democrats, and it just didn't happen. Now, why is that? You know, I mean, is it because there wasn't enough coverage of the of the middle of the country? I mean, I read a ton of articles about the middle of the country, so that doesn't that that explanation doesn't feel entirely right. But there was a way in which the people writing the stories somehow fundamentally missed the spirit of the time. They did they underestimated the disillusionment, the anger, and they just didn't somehow see that. And that's that's worrisome, you know. That is worrisome to me. Uh, they didn't take Donald Trump seriously, and a lot of the country did, you know. That's that's weird to me. That's weird that we miss that. To me, that feels like a real cause for um, reflection. There is a way in which the the coastal sort of media were very fixated on the fact that this guy is, I would say, legitimately a madman, but uh, he was playing differently to a different set of people. And we didn't take that seriously, you know, and that feels to me like that's on us entirely. Judd Abelbrad, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mossel. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish McDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara jensen McKee. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Ben Wood, Shane Johnson and Ian Cooper, mixed by Brendan Zacharias. And our executive producer is Daniel Hart.